For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we've, we spent the entire year so far studying the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a book in our Bibles. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first of two letters written by a guy named Paul to the ancient Greek city of Corinth. This, this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago. And it was written to a pretty new group of Christians, a Christian community, a church in that city. And Corinth was a very large, very wild city. And the church at Corinth was a large, wild church. Um, the, the, The culture had infected the Christian community there. And so they were doing what a lot of people in Corinth were doing. They were, they were coming, they were showing up with what the Apostle Paul calls the wisdom of the world, where they would show up at home church and it was just another opportunity for me to show off, show off my great wisdom, my, my spiritual gifts, my gifts of speaking, my gifts of knowledge, to brag about my spiritual experiences, my gifts of prophecy. We studied spiritual gifts last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what Paul says is you guys need to worry less about how gifted you are and you need to learn the way of love. And he, right at the beginning, right before chapter 13, he says, now I will show you a way that is beyond comparison. You're all about comparing and who's more excellent. I will show you the most excellent way, a way that transcends and encompasses whatever gifts you might have. The way of love. The way of love. You know, love is at the heart of Christianity. Do you realize that? Somebody asked Jesus one time, they said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love is at the heart of Christianity like nothing else is. The Bible says that God is love. And so it makes sense that love would be at the heart of what he wants from us. The problem is... We don't know what love is. We, we have trouble defining the word love. And, you know, you could ask five different people and you might get six different definitions for the word love. Let's look at a few. Defining love. Here's the 19th century author. The, the poets and authors have mused about love for millennia. Mark Twain, love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. I want you to want me. So here it's, it's a desire to be desired. That's how he defines love. 19th century poet Oscar Wilde calls love a misunderstanding between two fools. (laughs) What about the 20th century poet Hathaway? What does Hathaway say about love? I want no other, no other lover. This is our life, our time. When we are together, I need you forever. Is it love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. (laughs) Love is confusing. It's a source of pain. It's it's something he needs. Now that song's going to be stuck in your head. (laughs) Like it's been in mine all day. (laughs) We could turn to the scientists. Maybe they have more to offer. Sigmund Freud. He said, isn't what we mean by falling in love a kind of sickness and craziness? An illusion? A blindness? to what the loved person is really like. So he doesn't have a real high view of love, sickness, craziness, illusion, and blindness. What about the Encyclopedia of Psychotherapy and Counseling? Recent studies in neuroscience have indicated that as people fall in love, the brain consistently releases a certain set of chemicals, including the neurotransmitter hormones. 
stimulating the, the brain's pleasure center and leading to side effects such as increased heart rate, loss of appetite, sleep, and an intense feeling of excitement. Baby, when I'm around you, my brain just releases a whole mess of neurotransmitter hormones. <laughs> is that all love is? It goes on, it says, the evolutionary psychology has attempted to provide various reasons for love as a survival tool. Humans are dependent on parental help for a large portion of their lifespans compared to other mammals. So, love has been seen as a mechanism to promote parental support of children for this extended time period. Well, if the scientists aren't cutting it for you, maybe we could turn to the good old standby Urban Dictionary. <laughs> I picked a few that I liked. Number eight, when one soul is split into two bodies and both pieces find each other. <laughs> like magnets, they will one day be joined together and it will be hard to pull apart. <laughs> also like magnets, if they're pulled apart, they're never the same. Never. <laughs> So what is it? Is it an irresistible feeling, an evolutionary mechanism, momentary pleasure, leaving lasting pain, a crazy sickness, neurotransmitter hormones, a foolish misunderstanding, or soul magnets? God says none of the above. In fact, the things we come up with for love really don't usually have much overlap than what God means by love in the Bible, agape. Jesus defined it this way. He says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yeah, love, not just something that happens to you, a feeling that hits you and leave and maybe leaves you crumbling afterward. He said, no, love is a choice, a decision. So he says, love one another as I have loved you. Lay down your life. That's what love is. A commitment to give of myself in every way for the good of another. Not a feeling primarily. There are feelings that come along with it. All sometimes the feelings are negative. It's a commitment to give of myself in every way for the good of another. That is agape love. That's what scripture means. And you know, this problem of definitions, this, was, this is not just a problem for us. It was a problem for the, them back in the first century as well. This word agape, it's, David Pryor writes, it's well known that the Greek word for love in the New Testament, agape, was not previously in common use. Lots of words for love in the Greek language. New Testament writers didn't pick any of them that were in common circulation. no. Agape was taken into the Greek of the New Testament specifically because the love of God seen in Jesus of Nazareth required a new word. No word they had fit the kind of love that they were seeing in Jesus. God's love completely transcends all human ideas or expressions of love. It's a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love. A love lavished on others without a thought of whether they're worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. Did you know that God loved you so much he had to make up a new word just to explain to you how great his love is? It's not about deserving it. It's not about something you earn. It's something he gives whether or not you deserve it, which you don't, and whether or not you're even willing to receive it, which we often are not. And yet God loves and he gives and he wants you to learn to love like him. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to learn about love. Perhaps the most magnificent chapter in the entire Bible. Perhaps the most well-known in the entire Bible. Often used at weddings, it's really a challenge that should challenge our very notions of love. Paul writes, 
If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Yes. The Corinthians, they viewed their speaking gifts, their spiritual experiences that came with it as a sign that they were really, really advanced. You know, they, would, they had, some had the ability, a spiritual gift where they could speak in other languages in order to communicate about Christ to people that didn't speak the common language. Some, apparently, were not even speaking languages of human languages. They were speaking languages of angels, some sort of otherworldly language. They also were very proud of their speaking abilities in general. And there were all these ecstatic experiences where they'd be carried along and find themselves speaking in another language. And they thought, this is a sign that I am awesome. And what does Paul say? He says, God has a different view. If you're just showing off your, your speaking abilities, God doesn't care how many spiritual experiences you have or how often you speak in tongues or how high you elevate that. Just because you've elevated that to, like some Christians do today, make this mean a mark of a superior Christian. He says, no, if you don't have love, it's like a clanging, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know what that sounds like, right? pretty annoying, huh? <laughs> you know, so here, you know, I don't know if you know that person, we're like, man, I just had this awesome time with God the other day, and man, it was so good, and I just felt so carried away in the spirit, and I never love anybody, and I'm so freaking selfish. <laughs> and Paul's like, shut up. <laughs> Can somebody please turn that thing off? God says, you're so annoying. <laughs> as annoying as that symbol. It's like, it's like fingernails on a blackboard when an incredibly selfish person talks about how spiritual they are because of their spiritual experiences. Don't be that guy. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Very strong word. Again, the Corinthians viewed their gifts of knowledge and prophecy as a sign that they were really advanced. They were competing. They were talking over one another. They were so full of themselves. They were boastful. They were prideful. They were all puffed up with their knowledge. Is it possible to have a knowledge that doesn't lead you to love? Yes. You ever been around a know-it-all? They're always correcting everyone. They're always showing off their knowledge. Like, actually, um, it was 1998, not 1997 when that happened. <laughs> it's like, oh, thank you so much. I really needed that. God's not against knowledge, but a knowledge that never expresses itself in action is a knowledge that puffs up, a knowledge that turns twisted. It can really affect you negatively if you're not acting on what you're learning. Also, he says, if I have a faith, you know, again, is there possible, is there possible to be a faith that leads away from love, a, a faith that leads to acts of hate? You bet. Think about it. You know, how many people on almost a daily basis have so much faith in their religion that they're willing to kill, even sacrifice their own body in, in a suicide bombing to wipe others out? Acts of hate, not acts of love. And so it is possible to have a faith that leads away from love. It matters the object of your faith. Faith should lead to love, true biblical faith. 
And the Corinthians were all confused on this point, and God has a different view than them. You know, he's not like, well, if you don't have love, your gifts won't be as effective as they could be. No. He says lack of love cancels out the use of those other gifts. It twists them to where this is not what God wants. When it comes to eternal things, it's, it's worthless. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Apparently, some here in this church, apparently working so hard, sacrificing so much, doing their duty, feeling like they're very, very spiritual. Very spiritual. And yet, they lacked love. You know, is it possible to sacrifice even everything and not have love? You bet it is. Such an act could make you proud. Such an act could make you just a spiritual, a, a taker, somebody that's needy. Because I've given everything away, and now I've got to take from people. Um, God has a very different view than they did. Asceticism, you know, and how many of us here, maybe some of us are struggling with this. We feel like I'm just giving and giving and giving so much, God, I'm sacrificing so much, and I'm not getting anywhere, and this doesn't seem like this is the right way. It's possible you've made the same mistake. You've missed the forest for the trees. You don't love. You don't have love. It's all about you and what I'm sacrificing, what I'm giving up. And the focus needs to turn off of you and on to other people and on to not just laying down my life, but giving of myself for their good. That's what God wants. And so we have this situation where this person he's describing might have mountaintop spiritual experiencing. It says, experiences, speaking beautiful worlds only, only angels could understand. A PhD level of Bible knowledge and mountain moving faith. They've given away all they own. They've even sacrificed their own bodies, worn down or given up for the service, so-called service of God. And they have not love. And Paul says, that's enough to cancel everything else out. And all of a sudden, you realize you've wasted your life doing what you thought was right, but actually was totally wrong. You've had a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge, because you lacked love. And love is the most important thing. Love is the thing that holds all of this together. Love is the superior way beyond comparison. That's what we need to learn about. And so he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not provoked. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It never gives up, always believes, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. About 15 things about love he gives us there. And as we look at this, you know, it sounds like kind of nice platitudes. It doesn't sound that profound at first glance, like something you might read inside of a Hallmark card. But if you take a closer look at it, you realize what a high bar this is. Sometimes it helps to take your own name, to take the word love out and put your own name in there. And you see just how high the bar really is. Let's, let's use my name, for example. Scott is patient. Scott is kind. Scott does not envy, does not boast. He is not proud. Scott does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. 
This God is never provoked. He keeps no record of wrongs. This God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Scott never gives up on people, always believes in them, always hopes, always perseveres. Scott never fails. <laughs> you can talk to my wife afterward if you want to see <laughs> how true any of that is. Yeah, this is um, it's a very high bar. These are all present tense verbs, too. It's not like you're this once in a while. You're constantly being patient, constantly showing kindness, never, constantly in a state of not envying, never boasting, never being proud. It, these, these are verbs, every single one of these. And it, it's not that a person can't do one of these once in a while, but what God wants is you to do, to be characterized by this. It's a love that ultimately can only come from him. You simply can't love the way God wants you to without a relationship with him. As 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. You know, we can't squeeze this kind of love up from within. That, that would never happen. That would never work. It's not there. You're looking in the wrong place. Instead of looking within for this kind of love, you need to look at God because this same passage in 1 John says, God is love. So whereas my name does not fit in this passage... You could say Jesus is patient. Jesus is always kind. Jesus does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. Jesus is not provoked. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus Christ never gives up. He always believes, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus Christ never, ever fails. It's the way God is. You need to receive his love, which was exemplified on the cross, if you're ever going to love like God. It's the love of Christ that shows you what real love is. It's the love of Christ that gives you a secure base from which to love others. It's the love of Christ that melts your heart as you see that God hasn't given up on me, God has always persevered with me. God had a vision for me when I did not. God loved me enough to send his one and only son when I hated him. I was his enemy. And this is where true love begins. This is where loving with agape love begins to happen. And so as we read through these, we're just going to briefly talk about each of these points in this. I just want us to try to open up our hearts and try to let God speak to us where we need to grow in the area of love. So love is patient. Yes, love is patient. Demanding love is impatient love. We want it, and we want it now. And we don't have to wait. We don't have to put up with people because people take a long time to change. And we can't believe they're the same way after all these months <laughs> or after all these years. Sometimes God needs to say, where were you at at that point in your spiritual life? How, messed, how, how many advantages did you have and you were still that far behind? Yeah, people take a long time to change and God wants to teach us to hang in there with them. Love chooses joy and fulfillment over instant gratification. 
We are all about instant gratification, which is no gratification at all. It's, it's an addiction that leaves us emptier and emptier, experience-seeking, pleasure-seeking. God says it's better to give than to receive. And love is how he teaches us the real meaning of that. And this is how we gain that deep peace, that deep joy, that deep satisfaction. Love is kind. Yeah, kindness. When you think of unkind, you think of meanness, fierce, dangerous person. People, are, people can be pretty dangerous. When they're only dangerous some of the time, that's sometimes the most scary because you never know when they're gonna be dangerous. You never know when they're gonna be mean. We need kindness, we need friendliness, we need gentleness, a fruit, another fruit of the Spirit, as is kindness. Merciful. God wants us to learn to be kind so we can be gentle with people, so we can really care for people like Christ did. It does not envy. No love, I'm seeking to give of myself for your good, and so it's not possessive. I'm not trying to control the other person. It's not a competing uh, love where I'm trying to be better than you. I'm not upset that something good happened to the other person. It's like, wow, you got a girlfriend and I don't. I'm really happy for you. That's the girl I like, actually. <laughs> She's great. I'm so happy for you. Oh, and a new cell phone. Great. Your parents got that for you. Awesome. Oh, and your parents are helping you out with, they're giving you a car? Man, that is awesome. All right, I'm just so happy. What, what else can I do to try to help you become all that you can be for God? I'm happy when other people succeed. I'm not upset. I'm not wishing they didn't have it so that I could have it. It does not boast. It is not proud. Yeah, the Corinthians, they were pushing others down to lift themselves up. Pride keeps you from serving the other person. It keeps you from getting down there and doing the dirty work like Jesus did on the last night before the cross, doing the thing nobody else wanted to do. Servant leadership, humble leadership. Jesus says, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and then you will find rest for your souls. Love does not dishonor others. This, this one's a little, some, some translations, it says it's not rude, does not act unbecomingly. This one's tricky, but there's a sensitivity, an honoring of the other person. Uh, some of the ways we act toward people tends to reduce people down to almost subhuman levels, treating them like objects, like lower life forms. Um, whereas love, I seek to honor others. I seek to lift other people up. I seek to communicate the value that God has given them. Not rude, not insensitive, not I just want what I want and I don't care how it affects anybody else, they just need to deal with it. That's not love. Love's not self-seeking. Yeah, if you had to come up with the opposite of love, some people might say hate. I think with biblical love, I mean hate's over there on the opposite side of the spectrum, but I think, I think selfishness, self-seeking might be about as opposite as you can get from agape love. Instead of giving myself in every way for the good of another, I'm taking. I'm seeking what's best for me. And that's the opposite of what God does. God seeks the good of others. He doesn't have any needs. His needs are all met. And so, therefore, he's free to give. Give to other people. And he wants to teach other people how to become givers themselves. Love's not provoked. 
Um, some say not easily angered, but it's, it's not, the word easily is not in there. It's just, it's not provoked um, to anger. Now, it's not saying love never gets angry. If you, if you study the life of Christ, you see there's times he was really angry. Angry at the, the religious hypocrites. He cleansed the temple, had a whip out, turning tables over, cracking the whip at the animals, driving them out of there as the religious leaders were using God's name to get rich and to rip people off who had traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals. Jesus was not happy about that. He was not happy that the religious leaders were communicating something false about the way God was. He hated religion. Hypocrisy made him angrier than anything. But it wasn't that Jesus just flew off the handle. No. That that, That expression of anger was very intentional on his part. If you study that story. And so there's a disciplining aspect of love. Love is not doormat love where I just let somebody trample me all the time. I will express anger or bring other consequences for the good of another. But it's not the kind of love that just snaps and just flies off the handle. No, it's thinking this person is not getting it. What they're doing, they're downplaying it like we tend to do. And there's been times where I've gone into a conversation like, okay, I'm going to bring this up. And if they're still not getting it, I'm going to say this. And here's how I'm going to say it. And I'm going to try to break through to this person to see how bad this really is. But it's not because I just can't take it anymore. It's because I'm worried about them. But this flying off the the handle business where somebody else just made me angry. You know, nobody else can make you angry, okay? That's That's a choice you make. And we tend to underestimate how much damage even a single episode of anger can do. And boy, is there a lot of anger in our relationships. I uh, I went camping this past weekend, and just walking around a campsite, you tend to hear a lot more than under normal circumstances about the way that relationships and families operate. Couldn't believe how much anger yelling I heard. No, don't pound that tent stake in like that. What are you doing? I've told you. Would you you quit it? Stop. Husbands yelling at wives, wives yelling at husbands, parents yelling at children. I thought, man, these are are the families we're growing up in where anger is this normal. A lot of us, we grew up in families like that. We learned the way of anger, not the way of love. How seriously should we take these single episodes of anger? Pretty freaking seriously. A single one can undo months of building trust, of building closeness. Things aren't safe again. People retreat back to their corners. Love is not provoked. Love creates a safe place. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, love, it doesn't necessarily forget the wrongs. Like when God forgives us, it's not that he forgets what happened. No, it's that he doesn't hold it against us. And that's what love does. Love is not keeping a list of ways to punish the other person. It's not holding it against the person. Love forgives. It pays the debt. It absorbs the cost. It moves toward the person. If you're really going to learn to love, you need to learn to forgive. The forgiving aspect of love. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love hates to see 
people destroy their lives. Hates to see people choose against God. Tears us up. But it rejoices when people turn back to God. It rejoices when people side with the truth. Yes, it is a love based on truth. Love never gives up. It always hangs in there with people. It always keeps in there with people. It always believes. Not that it always believes anything you tell it. It's not a gullibility here. No, it's believing in someone versus cynicism. We're cynical, so many of us. That's not compatible with love. No, we need to learn to believe in people. It always hopes, has a positive vision for this other person's life, It always perseveres. It always hangs in there through innumerable letdowns, innumerable disappointments, hurts so many times, and we move right back in, and we love again. We open our hearts up again. And maybe some of you, you've got a relationship in your life right now, and this is is making you think of that relationship. It's so hard. You've been hurt so many times. You're giving up, you're losing hope, you don't believe in this person, you're not interested in persevering, and God says love. He says love. Is it possible that God put this person in your life and that his purpose in doing so was not to make you feel amazing every second of every day. <laughs> is, that, is that a possibility? Is it possible maybe this was an intentional move on his part to teach you to love, to chisel you into the shape of his son? You know, if the block of marble could talk, it doesn't feel too good when the artist takes the chisel to it. <laughs> but that's the only way to the, to the finished product. And in Christianity, God uses relationships more than anything to grow us. Some of the greatest pain in our lives, Ajith Fernando, grew, he ministers in a country where there's horrendous persecution against Christians. And he says, people are like, what's it like to live there? That must be painful. And he says, no. The greatest pain is in personal relationships. God is trying to teach you to love. He's trying to teach you that love never fails. And we're like, what? Love never fails? Yeah. Because no one can keep you from giving, ever. I mean, manipulation can fail. Giving a little something so I can get a little something back can fail. Loving with my agenda where you're going to do what I say, that can fail. But giving for their good? It's impossible. It's to fail. It's an invincible position. They might not respond very well to it, but you'll be able to stand before God someday and say, Lord, I I loved. I gave. With your power, I did my best to give, to do what I thought was for their good. And no one can stop you from doing that. It turns you from a victim that hopes they'll receive love and hopes they'll have some feeling of love and hopes some people will treat me the right way. And it brings you up that next level to the victorious Christian life of love output. 
The problem in many of your spiritual lives is you're taking. And people aren't loving you the right way. That's your complaint. It might be a number of different ways of saying it. But you're taking and you need to learn to give because it is better to give than to receive. God is trying to take you up to that next level. That's why maybe the feelings are dropping off some, the good feelings, because God wants you to learn the way to fulfillment is by giving and not by having everyone focus on you. A community of love, that's what God wants. And no one can keep you from doing that, no matter how you're treated. You can always love. And love never fails. Paul says, where there are prophecies, they'll cease. There'll be a day where there won't be any more prophecy when we get to heaven. Languages, tongues, they will be stilled. The gift of tongues, apparently that's not going to be a thing someday. Where there is knowledge, these, gifts of, these special gifts of knowledge and insight that God gives out, that'll pass away too. These gifts the Corinthians were so proud of and they were comparing each other on, God says, someday we're going to get to heaven and that'll pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Some theologians like to read this and say, well, the gift of tongues, it only lasted through the end of the first century until the Bible was finished being written. No, if you read this passage, you, what's clear in the next couple verses is he's talking about a time that has not happened yet. A time when we're in heaven, when we're fully known, when we fully know, when we see clearly face to face. That's when we get to heaven. And what he's saying is when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. These special gifts that the Corinthians had, he said, one day we're going to get to heaven and you're not going to have those anymore. In fact, once we're in heaven, why would we need spiritual gifts anymore? It looks like it's a whole new way of living. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the waves of childhood behind me. I think what he's saying here is, you know, like, this two-year-old might be potty trained, and this two-year-old might be like, I know my ABCs. And they're like, well, I'm better than you. I'm potty trained. And they're like, well, I'm better than you. I know my ABCs. Paul's like, one day, they're both going to be potty trained. <laughs> they're both going to know their ABCs. Why are we having this argument? And this is what the Corinthians were doing. Well, I speak in tongues. Well, I have knowledge. Well, I prophesy. Well, blah, 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 blah. Paul says, you guys are two years old, two year olds fighting over one knows math and one's potty trained. He says, you're going to be a lot more than both of that someday. Grow up. Learn to love. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. Yeah, they're mirrors. They weren't like our mirrors where you could see real clearly. It was like kind of a polished bronze and you could sort of see, it was kind of murky, like seeing your reflection in a pond or something. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So you got the dim reflection in the mirror versus face to face. You got knowing in part, knowing fully. You got child and grown up. And you know, he's saying, you know, now it's like we're looking, we kind of see this reflection, we can kind of tell what it is. There's so much we don't know at this point in our lives. A couple thousand years from now, things are going to be a lot clearer. 
when we're in heaven and glorified bodies in the very presence of God. There's only so much we can handle right now. And at that point, we're going to be like, oh, that's what that was showing. I couldn't look at it straight on. I couldn't comprehend it. Now I see fully. I know fully, even as I am fully known. And as 1 John says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's going to be a point where we're going to, just, we're going to see Christ and we're going to be like, oh, yeah. It's going to put a lot of other things into perspective. Paul says, how about a little humility during this temporary phase? We don't know that much. How about a little bit of love? How about we worry about that and not so much our comparisons about who knows what? Our competition. And he finishes, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Well, think about it. In the context, what use will we have for faith and hope once we stand in the presence of God? You know, faith is defined as, you know, it's, it's belief, it's rational, it's based on evidence, but it's still seeing, it's believing in the unseen. Once we see God, the unseen becomes seen. Faith won't really be a thing anymore, I guess. And if it is, I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to look like. What about hope? Hope is our confident expectation, not like, boy, I hope this happens, but the confident assurance of my future in heaven. But once we're there in heaven, hope is realized. And you can't hope for what you already have. But love, instead of coming to an end, that's the point when our ability to love will reach heights we never even imagined here on earth. We will love in new ways that we never dreamed possible. As we stand in the presence of God, as we're able to receive from him, as our bodies and our world is untainted by sin, that's going to be a good day. You know, there's a lot of broken relationships, even Christian relationships. Some are damaged so badly, they may be irreparable in this life. Maybe because one of the people is deceased, and so there's no chance to repair that relationship. Maybe things are just too far apart, we've gone our own ways, um, we're at peace as best as we can, but seems like there's so much more that should be there. Well, we're going to get to heaven. And those alienated believers will embrace. And they'll say, I see now what I couldn't see before. I'm sorry. I love you. And then Christ will we'll say, behold, I'm making all things new. And I'll wipe away every tear. And we'll move on into the age of agape. And that is 1 Corinthians 13. Let's pray. <clears throat> yeah, God, we're just bent toward inward. We're bent toward self. 
Um, that's part of the damage that was done when we broke away from you so many years ago. Thanks that you didn't let that stop you from loving us, but you pursued us with bold love, with forgiving love, with tough love, with tender love, Lord, with kindness, with compassion, Lord. You, you give everything. And um, you showed us perfect loving leadership, servant love. And um, I'm thankful for this clear picture here in 1 Corinthians 13, God. Um, I feel sort of discouraged sometimes after reading something like this. And um, I pray that anybody that's feeling that way would not, but that they would see this as your spirit convicting them, showing them a better way. pray we learn to be givers of love. And I pray for anyone here who's never received your love, I pray that they wouldn't go any longer without experiencing love from the God who is love. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.